We are going to continue our worship together this morning. So if you've got your Bible, if you want to grab it and make your way to the book of Judges, if you need to grab a Bible, there are some Bibles on the tray tables behind the chairs. Make your way to the book of Judges, and we're going to be in Judges chapters 4 and 5. If you were with us last week, that will be familiar. That's where we were last week. We are going to let that be home base for us again this morning. And this morning, as you've already heard, is the first week of Advent. And many times when the Advent season rolls around, we do a special Advent series for this time of the year. But we're not going to do that this year. We're going to stick with the book of Judges because the book of Judges is a particularly Advent book. Each cycle of the book of Judges leaves God's people with a sense of longing and and hoping and, and anguish even for the time in which the promise that God had given them would be fulfilled. Advent is that season in the the church calendar, the historic church calendar that leads up to Christmas, four weeks to Christmas, where it's marked by longing and anticipation for the fullness of God's promise that was to be known in the birth of Jesus. And, And so Judges is a particularly Advent book. God's people are left each cycle longing for the Messiah who can save them ultimately from their sin because every time we look at a different cycle in the book of Judges, we see God raise up a deliverer for his people that can lead his people out of the suffering that they're facing at the hands of of different oppressors, but that deliverer can never save them from their sin. The cycle just repeats. God's people again give themselves over to idolatry and sin. But the book of Judges works together as we've seen so far in the week's past that God uses these stories, uses this book to collectively lift up the eyes and the hearts of his people to focus on the one true deliverer. All the human deliverers are are flawed and can never ultimately bring the deliverance that God's people need. And so the stories together look to lift our eyes to the one true deliverer that we all have longed for, that we all need This is particularly true as well in the episode we have in chapters four and chapter five. And in fact, if you weren't with us last week, I'll give you the quick summary of what happens in that by the writing of another commentator. He said, the focus of this episode, this episode in the life of God's people with Deborah and Barak and Jael, the focus of this episode is not on those characters themselves, but on God, the rescuer of his people. These different leaders, egos, and the people's accolades, they all fade away in light of the glory of the one true God. It was the Lord who called Deborah to sit as judge over his people. It was the Lord who gave Barak skills and leadership to assemble and train an army. It was the Lord who gave Sisera into the hands of a woman. It was the Lord who went out before the armies of his people. All of that worked together to bring the deliverance that we learned about of God's people from the hands of Sisera, the general of King Jabin. And so this writer says this, and this is going to play a role for us this morning. He said, why then, on the backside of this, did God's people sing? Remember, chapter four in the book of Judges is the narrative history of this cycle in the life of God's people. But chapter five kind of brings that history to life because it's a song. It's a poem. It's a song that looks back into what God had done. And so this writer says, why do the people sing? And he says, they do it to praise the Lord and to remember his faithfulness. Deborah and Barak knew that people would be prone to forget the mighty works of God. That's why in God's providence, he gave them a song of remembrance. We've talked about this over and over again. God knows how forgetful his people really are. And we know we're no different than God's people Israel back then. 
we know how forgetful we are of the Lord. We know how forgetful we are of all that he has done for us through his son and all that he has promised to be for us through his son. We know that we give our hearts over to dead idols. He knows how forgetful we are. The difference lies for us with God's people then in that we live on this side of the cross. We have tasted of the goodness of the long-awaited Messiah that Israel continued to hope for and long for in each cycle of these judges. And so you and I, as God's people now, on, on this side of the cross, just like God's people in Judges 4 and 5, had every reason to sing and to celebrate and to sing a song of remembrance of who God is and what he had done for them, you and I have every reason on this side of the cross to sing our own song of remembrance, of thanksgiving. We have every reason to remember and to celebrate together all that God is for us through his son and all that that means for you and I as his people. We have every reason to remember and encourage and sing together of the fact that God has conquered our enemies of Satan, sin, and death in our place through the sacrifice of his son. And yet, while we sing a song of remembrance, of gratitude and thanksgiving for that, there's still a longing that churns inside of our hearts. We know we're not yet what we will be. We know that though we've tasted of the promise of God and the coming of his son, we know there's still more to come. We know that as God's people now, we're not yet what we will be when he returns. And so while we can sing a song of thanksgiving, we, we still have a heart of longing and anticipation and, and hope. This is why, at least personally for me, the first week of Advent is always my favorite. The first week of Advent falls on the heels of Thanksgiving. This, this year, particularly close. So while many of us had an opportunity to be with friends and family and, and to celebrate together the various evidences of God's grace in our life and to, to give thanks for all that God has continued to be for us through his son and the various ways we see it play out together through Thanksgiving, we come together the first Sunday of Advent and it's marked by longing and hope. Things aren't yet what they will be. We've just come off the heels of, of great thanksgiving and now we're, we're in a season marked by longing for something that is not yet here. There's a unique tension that lies in this first week of the Advent year for me. And so this morning, I wanna do something a little bit different than normal. I, I want us to explore this tension. Because honestly, if we're, if we're gonna be really honest about it, this tension doesn't just exist in the first week of Advent. It's just really easy to see because we've been talking about all that we have to be thankful for and who God is for us and all the evidences of his grace while still longing for the fullness of what he's promised. But that's every day if we're honest about it. Every day as we remember and encourage ourselves and one another in the gospel, every day we're reminded of, of all that we have to be thankful for and we can sing together a song of remembrance, remembering who God is for us in his son and yet at the same time, still churning in our hearts a longing for the day in which he'll return. And the fullness of all of his promises will be made known to us. And so this morning, I wanna, I wanna sit in that tension, that gratitude and that longing, and I wanna do it through the form of looking at Judges 4 and 5, where if, if God gave his people a song on the backside of his deliverance, if God delivered them from their enemies and gave them a song of remembrance to remember him, to remember who he is and what he's done and what that means for them, I want us to think about it in the same terms. What would our song be like? 
You and I who are on this side of the cross, who have every reason to celebrate God delivering us from our enemies of Satan, sin, and death, what would it look like if we sang a song of remembrance together? What would compose our song? What themes would make up our verses? How would this song help to push back the onslaught of forgetfulness in our hearts and at the same time stir in us that holy longing for the fullness of all that God has for us? What would, what would our song be like? Before you get too nervous, I'm not gonna make you sing. We're not gonna sing a song together. And I'm not gonna lead it because I'm not a good singer. But what I want us to do is I want us just to look at three big themes that compose this song. Three big themes, you really see them in the entire book of Judges, but you see it play out in a microcosm in this particular episode in chapters four and five. Three big themes that, that make up this song of remembrance, but at the same time still point to a longing for the fullness of what God has because I think these three themes that we see in their song are the same three themes that should make up our song because we're not much different. We just live in a different day and a different time. So as we begin to look at this, I, I want us to pray because we're gonna need the Lord's help this morning. We're gonna need, I'm gonna pray and then we're going to jump in and see what we've got. Father, thank you so much for this privilege that we have this morning to be together. But I never want to I never want to overlook the privilege that it is to gather together with your people, to take for granted what you have purchased for us at the cost of your son, the unity, the relationships, the, the bind that we have together because of your grace. I never want to overlook the privilege that we have to gather together and to be formed and to be shaped by your word together. So Lord, we ask that in this time that we have that you would do a miracle by your Holy Spirit working together with your word and that you would cultivate and stir in us a song of joy and remembrance for who you are and what you've done for us through your son that we can speak and sing to one another today and tomorrow and until the day that you return and that you would use this song to push back the onslaught of forgetfulness in our heart and stir in us a holy longing for the day in which you'll return. Let us long for that day more than any other day. Lord, we ask that you would do this this morning for your glory in the name of your son and for our good. Amen. All right, here's how we're gonna start. It's gonna be a little bit different, but here's how we're gonna start. The first place we wanna start, this first verse of the song, this, this theme that should comprise at least one verse of our song, I want us to start by just considering the very deliverance of God's people in and of itself. When you think about it through the entire book of Judges, but you can narrow it down even to chapters four and five here. When you think about the fact that God's people, again, repeatedly, after he delivers them, give themselves over to idolatry. Chapter four starts on the heels of God having delivered them through the, the, the deliverer Ehud. God's people, again, give themselves over to idolatry. They chose other gods. And you can turn over to chapter six, it's gonna happen again. So God's people continually prefer other gods over to him. They give themselves over to other things. And yet God, again, repeatedly, 12 times we see in the book of Judges, raises up a deliverer for them to deliver them from judgment. There's, there's something in this deliverance of God's people. There's, there's something to celebrate in this repeated act of God towards his people that should make up a, a verse of our song and, and it makes up an aspect of theirs. When we think about the, the deliverance that God gives his people in and of itself, we see rising up off the pages of the book of Judges and even this story, a rich picture of God's love. But there's something in particular that a picture of God's love forms in the hearts of his people and we see it's sung about in chapter five. In chapter five, verse 31, the very end of the song, 
God inspires Deborah to write this song that she and Barak would lead God's people to sing, this song of remembrance. In chapter five, verse 31, it says this, so may all of your enemies perish, O Lord. We haven't sung that song yet, but this is a song. May all of your enemies perish, O Lord. But look at what she says next. But your friends, be like the sun as he rises in his might. This continued deliverance of God's people by his hand from the judgment they deserve because of their sin, it doesn't just give us a rich picture of his love, but that picture of his love helps us to see the way that God looks at his people. God inspires Deborah to write this song. These words would be on the lips of all of God's people together as they would sing this song back to God and they would sing back to God what they understood about the way he saw them in his love. They were his friends. And I say this as a first verse of a song. This is a theme that should compose our song of remembrance because the reality of it is I'm not sure that you and I as God's people now continually see ourselves the way that God sees us. And so if I was gonna take their song and, and use it in some sense as a template to help us form our song, I would say it like this. Because God has conquered our enemies of Satan's sin and death in our place through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, we can know that we're not worms. Now I say that particularly. It's kind of a jab at something that has taken root in the life of contemporary evangelical church in America. It's this thing that can often be referred to as a worm theology where we don't understand and don't have on this side of the cross a right view of how God sees us. I would never encourage you to get your theology from Wikipedia. But if you go look at Wikipedia and you look up worm theology, they actually have a very good definition of it that's helpful. So lest you think I'm talking about something that you don't understand or doesn't apply to you, listen to how Wikipedia explains this and I think you'll understand where I'm going. Wikipedia defines worm theology like this. This is a term used for the conviction in the Christian culture today that in light of God's holiness and power, an appropriate emotion for God's people is a low view of themselves. The name may be attributed to a line in the Isaac Watts hymn, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, which says, would he, talking about Jesus, devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Does God have a low view of you? Does God have a low view of his people? In his eyes, should you then have a low view of yourself? Listen, if you just read the book of Judges, you can read this episode in and of itself, it would certainly seem justified. The continual forgetfulness amongst God's people, the continual return to idolatry, yet again and again and again, what do we see in Judges? We see God's rich and immense love for his people committed with his whole heart to his people, committed to them and to their preservation. God had already said of them in Deuteronomy chapter seven that they were a people holy to him, that he had chosen them out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his treasured possession. That's what he said about his people. They were his treasured possession. They don't deserve deliverance. They have continued to rebel and to sin knowingly and deliberately, knowing what they were going to do and wanting to do what they continued to do. And all that they deserved was the holy justice of an eternal God, yet he gives them deliverance. Because he's committed with his whole self to their preservation. Because they're his treasured possession. 
Chuck Colson was writing about this cycle in the book of Judges, thinking about the way that God looks at his people. And he said this, why does God continue to extend his love so generously in this unmerited way? He said, God is unshakably committed to his creation, to his human creation, and to his plans for both. Remember this, God did not make junk, and he will not junk what he's made. He's lovingly loyal and loyally loving to the work of his hands. He loves what he's committed to, and he's committed to what he loves. This commitment will ultimately find its fulfillment in the sacrificial death of his son in your place for your sins. God does not have a low view of his people. And his people, having tasted of his grace, are not meant to have a low view of themselves. He created you in his image and likeness. He didn't make you a worm. He made you like himself. Paul will take this and and help clarify this a little bit more for the church. In Romans chapter eight, Paul's writing to the church and Paul says, listen, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that, listen, we're children of God and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You are a co-heir with Christ. You're not a worm. One of my favorite narrative explanations of the work of God through his son, of of the gospel, simply says this, and it, it helps with this, I think, and you'll probably know who wrote it when I begin to read it. It says, the Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to a deep humility and a deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both my swaggering and my sniveling. It undermines the swaggering and the worm and the low view of myself. I can't feel superior to anyone and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I don't think of myself any more or any less. Instead, I actually think of myself less. I'm flawed, but I'm loved. And it's this deep confidence in what God has said over me that frees me to real humility, not a false humility clothed in self-deprecating terminology. Friends, you're not worms. By the grace of God, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, writing to the church, will say over and over again when he write, they write letters to the church and greet them, you are indeed in the eyes of God by his grace, saints, That's who you are. That's who you are by the grace of God and the work of his son. When God would lead Deborah to write this song that would be on the lips of God's people to sing in remembrance of who God is and what he's done for them and what that means for who they are in his eyes, he leads her to write for them to sing that they are indeed his friends. They've always been his treasured possession. You, by the grace of God and the work of Christ, are co-heirs with his son. You're saints. That's who you are. Do you see yourself as a co-heir with Christ. 
By the grace of God and the work of Jesus in your place, do you look at your brothers and sisters around you and recognize them as saints? Friends, God doesn't have a low view of you. And it matters in that we sing in our song of remembrance all that it means for us, all that God has accomplished for us by his work through his son and what that means about how we understand who we are. Friends, you're not worms. By the grace of God, you're saints. But that's just one verse and we'll get to what that means in the, in the Advent longing in a minute. There's a second verse of the song that you see them sing and you see played out in the story that should be a theme of our song as well. And that's simply this, because God has conquered my enemies of Satan, sin, and death through Jesus, I can know one, that I'm not a worm. But two, I I can know that I'm not alone. I can know I'm not alone. One of my favorite parts of Judges chapters four and five is the way both the story and the song go together to highlight the work of God's people together for God's glory and for their good. You see Deborah the prophetess calling out Barak. You see Barak the general training and leading the battles, the troops into battle. You see the extended family member, the extended generation, JL. You see her being used providentially in the hands of God for his purposes in the conquering of Sisera. You see the tribes of Israel coming together So it's not just Deborah, it's not just Barak, it's not just Jael, it's the tribes coming together to accomplish the purpose that God had put out before them. I I love the way the song sings about it in chapter five. Just imagine this being a song. Chapter five, verse 11, it says, then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives of son of Abinam. Verse 13 says, then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak. And then it says, into the valley, they rushed at his heels. God's people together moving forward for God's purposes. And then we see, and we were reminded last week that in verses 20 and 21 of chapter five, God himself sovereignly orchestrated all of creation to achieve this defeat for his people. And when you put it all together, the way that God used Deborah and Barak and Jael and the tribes and God himself working, you get this stunning picture of God working in and through his people for his glory and for their good. And then when you take that picture of the way God used all of those people together, not any one of them, but all of them together, and consider what it was he was calling them to do. He was calling them out to go toe-to-toe with the biggest war machine they had ever seen, Sisera and 900 chariots of iron and all of his soldiers coming with it, them with 10,000 fighting farmers. And you see... It wasn't Deborah's alone to do. It wasn't Barak's alone to do. It wasn't the warrior tribes alone to do. Each together was dependent on the other and ultimately dependent upon God to act on their behalf. That's the way that God had planned it. And that's what they celebrate when they sing. 
That's why when they sing, they highlight the tribes coming in to fight, the tribes coming in to serve. Deborah calling out Barak, Barak leading the tribes down, JL in her hand and defeating Sisera. It's what they celebrate. They celebrate what God had put together. They celebrate the way that God used his people together to achieve his purposes. Listen, take a minute. Remember, we're gonna gonna look at this theme and what does it mean for our song? Just take a minute and consider the calling that God has on his people now. I mean, we don't have near the time to go into all the places to look at this, but just take a minute and consider what God says to his people now in Ephesians chapter three. Paul tells the church in Ephesus that the church, God's people now, are meant to display the manifold wisdom of God, that it might be known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, and that that was according to the eternal purpose that God had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God intends for his glory and his wisdom to be on display to unbelievers and powers and principalities in the entire cosmos through the corporate display of his people. You think 900 chariots of iron is something. God intends through his people to put on display, to manifest, to to display his manifold wisdom, his power, his glory to a watching world. Paul, writing to Timothy, his protege in ministry, who's going to oversee this church in Ephesus down the road. Paul reminds Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter three that God's people now, the church, they're the church, they're the people of the living God. Put that together with what he told the church in Ephesus. God's people together are meant to put on display the manifold wisdom and power of God to a watching world, a world that is full of dead idols. They're meant to put on display to be the people of the living God to display his wisdom, to display his power, them together. One writer actually says the church is God's vehicle for displaying his glory to his creation. That is an enormous task and calling. And if you take the time to go look in the New Testament all the different places where the writers write about this calling in in various ways, you'll never find an instance where they write about this calling in singular language. It's never you are to do this, it's y'all are to do this. It's always plural. It's never singular. God never intended for any individual disciple to accomplish the ultimate purpose that he has set out for his people. Instead, he's put us together. Paul tells the church in Corinth that he's made us like a body. For just as the body is one but has many members, Paul says, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. So God's people now, pictured like a body, are the organic body of Christ meant together to display to a watching world bent on dead idols the wisdom and manifold power of the one living and true God. It doesn't get bigger than that. But we're not just a body. We've already read God has made us family. He's made us co-heirs with Christ and he's adopted us as sons and daughters. 
So now he's made us brothers and sisters, a family that's meant to be together. And in our togetherness and in the way that we live, we're meant to put onto display to a watching world bent on dead idols, the manifold wisdom and power of the one living and true God. Friends, that's what we're meant to accomplish together. That's a mission that none of us can accomplish alone, which is why he's given us each other. So no doubt, if you were to just take a moment to think about this song and the verse that you would write, it would not be hard for you at all if you gave it any thought to write a verse that would reflect some level of gratitude and thanksgiving for the many brothers or sisters in Christ that God has brought along your path at any point to help you and stir you up by way of reminder and reminding you of who you are because of his grace or who have helped you hold fast to your confession of hope without wavering, who, who have stirred you up to love and good deeds who have helped you not throw away your confidence in the gospel which God said has indeed a great and tremendous reward because of God's grace in conquering your enemies of Satan, sin and death in your place you can know who you are in his eyes and you can know today that you're not alone in accomplishing what he's called you to do he's made you part of a family but not only that the third verse because he's conquered your enemies of Satan, sin, and death through the sacrifice of his son. You, you can know who you are in his eyes and you can know that he's put you with a family and you can know that in that family towards the purpose which he's given you, you can know that you're not useless in that. You're not useless in this. If you think that God can't use you there's a whole host of reasons for why people can begin to believe that. But if you begin to believe that God can't use you to accomplish this purpose that he has, then you in particular need to listen to the book of Judges. Few books put on display the willingness and desire of God to use all of his people for his glory and the good of his people. Few books put on display the way that God uses all of his people and the fact that God delights in using all of his people. And it's been that way since the very beginning. See, in Genesis chapter one, when God created Adam and Eve, when he created man and woman, he gave them both the mandate, gave them both the mission to exercise dominion over creation. And it required the interdependent gifts of both of them working together to see what God intended come to fruition. God intended for both of them together to accomplish the purpose for which he gave them. And you know what? That never changed. You see it play out through the life of God's people and the work and the expansion of his kingdom all the way through the New Testament. In fact, before Jesus ascends back into heaven, he, he gathers and he looks at his disciples and he gives them what's commonly understood as the Great Commission, right? I'm sending you out to go to make disciples in my name, teaching people to observe everything that I have taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He gave that commission to all of his disciples, That commission, that mission to go and to make disciples, to go and to teach people all that he has commanded, knowing that all authority is with him and he is with them everywhere they go. He gave it to all of his disciples. 
both men and women. And both are to do it with confidence. See, God has always intended for all of his people to be involved in all that he has purposed. From the proclamation of the gospel, the declaration of the good news, to the work of establishing the church and the growing up and maturing of that church to display the manifold wisdom and glory of God to a watching world. He intends for all of his disciples to be a part of that. And not only does he intend and has he always intended for all of his disciples to be a part of all of his purposes, but he has gifted each and every single one of them with a unique gift by his Holy Spirit that interdependently together with the others does the very thing that he's purposed. And he's given gifts to all of his disciples. You can go to various places in the New Testament and you can read about this. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. You can go see it in 1 Corinthians 12. And he says, to each, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So to each of his disciples, God's spirit gives a particular gift, a manifestation of his spirit for the common good, for the building up of the body into maturity, into the head of Christ, for the growing up and maturity of God's people. God gives his people, all of his people, different gifts to see that happen. Paul writes to the church in Rome. You can see it in Romans 12. Again, he says in verse six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Plural, plural. God has given each of us different gifts. He intends for each of us to be a part of his purposes. He intends for all of his disciples to be a part of his work of displaying his glory and power and his manifold wisdom to a watching world. And for that, he has put us together as a people, as a family, and given us different gifts so that he can look at all of the church and say, if you have the gift from God of prophecy, then do it in proportion to your faith. If he's given you, man or woman, the gift of service, then, then serve if he's given you the gift of teaching, then teach. If he's given you exhort, the gift of exhortation, then do it in your exhortation and encouragement of others. If he's given you the gift of contribution, do it in generosity. If he's given you a gift to lead, do it with zeal. If he's given you the gift of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. God has gifted his people and given gifts to all of his people and he uses those gifts through his people to advance his purposes. And none of his gifts, anything that we just looked at right there, Romans chapter 12, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, contribution, generosity, leading, mercy, none of those gifts are limited by gender. See, what Paul is saying and the implication of what he is encouraging the church in is that God gives both men and women all of his disciples in these ways and the church needs to use all of those gifts to be the people that God has called us to be to do the thing that God has called us to do to reflect to a watching world bent on dead idols the truth of the one true and living God as they see his wisdom and power manifested through our life together and it takes all of us Judges chapter four and five, this episode that we've looked at in detail last week, we're just springing off of this week. It gives us such a beautiful picture of the way that God gifts his people in particular ways and then uses them together to accomplish his purposes. I mean, he gifted Deborah as a prophetess in, his, in her time. 
She spoke the word of God to God's people and she exercised a level of wisdom amongst God's people as she helped to, to, to judge and to oversee different situations in the life of God's people. He gifted Barak differently. He was able to organize and lead and, and train and, and dispense the troops in, in battle. See, all throughout the story of God's people and the advance of God's kingdom, you see it all throughout scripture. God uses his people together for his glory and their good. I mean, we don't have the time to go through all the specific places, even in the New Testament alone where you see it. But you can just read different letters. You can read in Romans chapter 16, Paul closes this great letter down thanking a number of people, particularly a number of women who co-labored with him in his ministry in the gospel. Many women who who used their homes as, as a place for Paul to come and to preach. Particular women, Eudia, Syntyphe, that Paul named by name, who he said labored by his side in the gospel. You can read about women like Eunice and and Lois, who I named my own daughter after, who were faithful to continue to teach the gospel to to the next generation, so much so that Timothy, Paul's right-hand man, came from their faithfulness to the gospel. You can read about Priscilla, who labored alongside her husband to help the influential preacher Apollos grow in his understanding and clarity of the gospel. You can read in 1 Corinthians in a letter that Paul wrote to that church where Paul talks about the men and the women together who were using the gifts that God gave them in, in exhortation to encourage the church when they gather together, just like this. You can read, in, in, again, in Romans 16, probably of my favorite, a woman named Phoebe. Phoebe, you can learn in Romans 16, was what was called a patron to Paul's ministry. And she helped make Paul's ministry possible She was a successful businesswoman and she was able to help finance his ministry. But there's something else about Phoebe that we rarely ever talk about. Most historians, both conservative and liberal, believe that Phoebe was the courier of the New Testament letter of Romans. When Paul wrote Romans, he gave it to Phoebe to take to the church. Donald Barnhouse, great theologian, he was writing about this and it's always stuck with me. He said, never was there a greater burden carried by such tender hands. The theological history of the church through the centuries was in the manuscript which she carried. The Reformation was in her hands. The blessing of multitudes in our day was carried in those parchments. He said, if the Romans had any questions about that letter when it was read, such as what is the righteousness of God or who is this wretched man that Paul refers to about halfway through, who do you think would be the first person they would ask and who do you think was commissioned to answer? It would have been the courier. Saints, God has a tremendous mission for his people. And he's gifted every single one of us to be engaged in the work. And again, it would take an entire morning to note specifically all the evidences of this grace alive and at work, even in Redemption Hill. But if you just look around, you can begin to see it. I mean, every Sunday morning when we gather together, both men and women use the gifts that God has given them to lead us in corporate worship, encouraging and exhorting us to love and to faithfulness, fighting back the forgetfulness, helping us to remember. I mean, every week all over this city, men and women use their homes to host saints to help equip them and encourage them in the gospel. 
And as this is happening, what we're seeing is we're seeing different gifts begin to flourish in these communities and in these different Bible studies that have come up. And we're seeing people with different gifts of teaching and different gifts of service and different gifts of exhortation rise up as we're using those gifts for the good of one another and the glory of God. Did you know that even beyond just that local expression, that this year we're going to be able to send our first two full-time missionaries to an unreached people group in Central Asia from this church? And do you know that both of them are women? This year in applications of the International Mission Board to go to unreached people groups, do you know that women outnumber men four to one? Did you know that some of our most galvanized local mission efforts to serve people in this city have been established and are run by women of this church? From the Sparrow Project, where women who were nurses in the ERs in hospitals around Richmond recognized the fact that homeless and indigent people who came into the ER were sent out with nothing. Usually their clothes were cut off of them and disposed of. They got paper scrubs and they left. And they began to gather people together to meet the need of these people that had nothing. And now that has gained a grant by the hospital and they're using other people in this church to come and serve and meet that need. And a whole project has grown up out of it. The Youth Life Learning Center of Richmond starting in the Delmont communities, serving low-income communities around this area, serving the kids and the families of those communities, started, what, 12, 13 years ago by a woman in the church? East End Pregnancy Center, spearheaded by another woman and her family in this church, now being a place where many different people, men and women in this church, can use the different gifts that God has given them of service and exhortation to care for people in desperate need, moms in desperate need, I mean, I can't name them all. I mean, we, we could keep going through the list, but, but in endless numbers of ways all throughout the week, needs are met, meals are made, tears are wiped, hearts are lifted, minds are taught by men and women of this church using the gifts that God has given them for the good of his people and his glory. The point is simply this, God has gifted all of his people to be a part of all of his mission to display his glory and to help the body grow up into the head, which is Christ, to help us mature. And there remain an endless number of ways that God intends to use you for this purpose. The reality of it is we just need to look around and, and ask him to show us. Just ask him, how how can you use me this week to do some spiritual good to someone else in the body this week? Who who could I use the gifts that you've given me to serve and to help grow in love and remembrance of you? I promise he'll show you. Listen, because God has defeated your enemies of Satan, sin, and death and, and rescued you through the sacrifice of his son, he has made you his child. You are his saint, You are clothed in the righteousness of his son and by his grace he's placed you into a family of like-minded believers and he's gifted you to play a role in his mission to reflect his glory to a watching world and to help his people grow up into maturity. Friends, you have every single reason, just like God's people in Judges 4 and 5, to sing a song of remembrance. One that will help fight and push back the onslaught of forgetfulness. But it's Advent, not just Thanksgiving, right? There's so much to be thankful for and to remember, yet there's still a longing that stirs. See, this song of remembrance reminds us as we sing it that we're not yet what we will be. 
Yes, when God looks at you, he sees his child, he sees you wrapped in the robes of Jesus' righteousness, that you, by the grace of God, are a saint in his eyes, but you're not yet what you will be. There's still a day that will come when you'll stand face to face with your warrior king who has, who has conquered your enemies on your behalf, and in that day, you will finally be made fully like him. But today, you still need to sing a song because you're prone to forget And the song will help cultivate in your heart a hope for tomorrow. And by the grace of God, we're we're not alone. And in the purposes of God, you're not useless, but we're not yet fully what we will be. Even in this local expression of God's people, we're, we're not yet fully flourishing. We still at times prefer our own autonomy over interdependence. We, we still prefer gossip over truthfulness. We still pursue our own interests like some of God's people in chapter five did. We still pursue our own interests over his at times. There, there are still times and, and in ways that we, that we fail to free all the gifts that God has given his people. Yet we know there's a day that's coming when we as his people will stand shoulder to shoulder with our entire family a family made up of men and women and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and will be there shoulder to shoulder for all of eternity. And we're reminded that what we are in our best days here is a dim reflection of what we will be when he finally comes. And so we sing a song of remembrance and we still sing, come Lord Jesus. And while we sing, come Lord Jesus, reminded yet again of what we're not yet we're reminded at the same time as we gather together of what God is doing to transform us even now. We're not yet what we will be, but every single day when we remind ourselves of who we are by the grace of God, God is working and transforming us further and further into that image and likeness of his son even now. Did you know that's why it was so important to the Apostle Paul and to Peter, to all the writers of the New Testament letters to emphasize the value of God's people gathering together? Do you know that's why we do what we do when we get together? Do you know that this is not just an event that we like to put on because it it helps us feel better about ourselves on Sunday afternoon knowing that you came? God does this because in doing this, when God's people gather together and their lives and their thoughts and their understandings and remembrances are recentered around his word, God is reshaping our hearts. God is forming us together even now and transforming us to be the people that he has called us to be, to be the reflection of his wisdom and likeness to a watching world. This isn't an event that we like to do. In the gathering of God's people together, God is reshaping his people into who he's calling them to be. He sends us out from here, a family, gifted, and empowered by his spirit together to reflect to a watching world the manifold wisdom and power of the living God in a world of dead idols. We're not yet what we will be. and We long for the day when Jesus returns. But until then, we can sing our own song of remembrance and gratitude. And we can know that even now, God is shaping us together for the mission that he has called us on together as his people for his glory and for our good. This morning, I'm I'm going to pray for us and and then we're gonna take a time to allow you to sit still with the Lord and reflect, 
to consider what would make up, the themes that would make up your song of remembrance. What it is you have because of the grace of God and the conquering work of Christ, you have to sing, to be grateful for, and yet still longing for the day when it finally fully comes. And then together, we're going to remember the conquering victory of God in our place for our sins through the sacrifice of his son as we receive communion together. God is going to invite us to a meal with his conquering king and we're going to remember and celebrate his reconciling grace as we receive communion together. A grace, a reconciling grace that's meant to spill over from the time together in communion into our relationships and lives together that a watching world might be confounded by the life of God's people together. So let me pray for us and and then we'll take a moment to respond. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. God, I think sometimes we so easily fall into our forgetfulness when it comes to not just what you've done, but who we are because of what you've done, what you've done and how you see us. And that begins to shape everything about the way we live our lives. This morning, God, I ask by your Holy Spirit, you would give us fresh eyes to see the way you see us. Lord, to not think that that's some kind of trick, to not think that's just the talking of a, of a preacher, that no, you truly, because of the work of your son, you see your people as your children, as saints. Lord, help us to Help us to sing a song in our hearts and to encourage one another with a song tomorrow of of who you are for us and what you've done. Lord, may we, your people, be the vehicle to display to a watching world your wisdom and your power, the truth that you are the one true and living God. We ask that you would do this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.